Good evening. A guilty plea by the Buffalo fascist mass shooter, Donald Trump's anti-Semitic dinner date, McCarthy threatens Democrats, inequity and vaccinations, and an addict shoots up in a park in New York City. He tells his story to the news. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Monday, November 28th, 2022. Peyton Gendron, a 19-year-old white gunman who killed 10 people and wounded three in May in a racist attack at a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York, pleaded guilty Monday to state charges of domestic terrorism as a hate crime, murder, and attempted murder. The guilty plea comes six months after Gendron used an illegally modified semi-automatic rifle to carry out the mass shootings at Topps Friendly Markets on May 14th. The charges come with a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the chance of parole. The victims, including customers, employees, and an armed security guard, range in age from 20 to 86. 11 of the 13 people shot were black and two were white. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump accused Gendron of trying to duck responsibility with a guilty plea because New York doesn't have a death penalty. Letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and Christian Clark, the head of the Civil Rights Division, and asked them to do exactly what they did in the killing of George Floyd, even though the state went forward to bring federal charges and make sure that the full weight of the federal government speaks to this racial motivated killing. That is the only way I believe this fam these families will get full justice. He entered this plea because there's no death penalty in New York. And I'm not saying that I've subscribed to the death penalty, but I want the most harsh sentence for this heinous act of violence done to people just because of the color of their skin. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump. Social media posts and a manifesto written by the gunman reveal he planned his attack for months, casing the top supermarket several times. Gendron posted he chose tops because it was in a Buffalo zip code with the highest percentage of black people close enough to where he lived in Conklin, New York. Meanwhile, in international news, hundreds of Chinese people flocked to the streets of Beijing protesting China's strict COVID policy Sunday night. The footage features protesters holding placards as well as candles and symbolic white pieces of paper to demand the easing of restrictions. Chanting slogans such as no more tests, protesters face an increased police presence at the scene. Patrol cars could be seen during the rally. The demonstrators also paid tribute to 10 victims of an apartment fire in the city of Arumqi in western China. A Foxconn factory where Apple manufactures its iPhones also saw violent protests. The demonstrations apparently linked to Beijing's zero-COVID lockdown policy. Meanwhile, in the United States, COVID remains a killer, although much reduced after lockdowns and unrest accompany the loss of over 1 million people in this country to the disease. 
Last week, the White House held a summit on COVID-19 equity. The disease hit the vulnerable and people of African descent among the hardest. An epidemiologist and the president and chief executive officer of the D. Beaumont Foundation is Ben Castrucci. He says the worst of the COVID epidemic was the result of poor policy choices going back decades. But hopefully, he says, healthcare workers and political leaders will learn and get it right for the inevitable next time. The only true way to keep Americans safe is through vaccination. And if you don't do it for yourself, do it for other people. And we still have several hundred people dying every day from COVID. People who are immunocompromised aren't as free just to kind of go out whenever they want. So we have to make a choice. And it's a choice about you know, how much are we willing to value American lives? And just taking a vaccine should be the least of, of which we're able to do to protect others. Are we in yet what you would call a post-COVID world? Is COVID actually still out there? Is is very little talk about it. Just because the media doesn't cover something doesn't mean it's gone. It's not going to be a post-COVID world. It's going to be a a different world with COVID in it. And we're going to have to learn how to minimize the toll that COVID takes on our population and our economy and figure out the the way that we live with it moving forward. You expect more of these. Do you think that'll be another 100 years to the next one or sooner? It'll be sooner, mostly because when you look at the 1918 flu, there wasn't the same kind of international travel that we have now. I mean, already somewhere there's a a pig and a bat getting together and cooking up the next virus, and it's going to find its way into our population because we're much more transient now than we've ever been before. What's really threatening the U.S. are viruses. This was a warning shot. COVID was nature's warning shot. It still took a million lives. Next time, we may not be off the hook that easily. You mentioned China. What are the Chinese doing that's any different from what you were doing? And uh, why should the protests there be uh, hollowed any more than the uh, protests in the United States against uh, COVID lockdowns and things like that? There were missteps made in how some of these policies were rolled out. Communication should have been clearer. The choices that we make, and I understand that closing schools was difficult. I have two children who were in middle school at the time. It wasn't easy. But the way that we make sure that we never get to that point again is we invest in public health now. That needs to be the message. We have chosen to limit public health authority in many states in reaction to closing businesses and closing schools instead of what we need to be doing, which is invest in public health. That's the path forward for prevention of of future viruses and the way that we contain future pandemics instead of having to mitigate their impact. We were surging and responding to one of the worst pandemics in our history already on a broken foundation. Those were political choices that we made. That's who's accountable. Some say it's false to say that it's a vaccine and people were lied to, that it was they were guinea pigs in a big experiment. The COVID vaccines were approved through the processes that were put in place to approve all of our medical and pharmaceutical interventions. It's interesting how quickly people take issue with the vaccine, but they're happy to look at Paxlovid or other therapies that are also under emergency use. We have to begin to trust science, debate policy, 
but trust science. Can we trust that this is not some corporate scam to like the weapons, like arms deals and things like that? That's what they fear. Look at the trial that these medications, these vaccines went through. And ultimately, look at every piece of data, reputable data, that has come out that has shown that those people who take the vaccine, even when infected, have better outcomes. All we're trying to do here is save lives. Kastrushi says there can't be one vaccine campaign in a country as diverse and divided as the United States. On Capitol Hill, Representative Adam Schiff on Sunday hit back at House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy for vowing to oust Schiff from the House Intelligence Committee for his handling of the investigation into alleged ties between former President Trump's campaign and Russia. Well, McCarthy apparently doesn't think it's collusion if your campaign manager is giving inside polling data and battle strategy in, in key states to an agent of Russian intelligence while the Russians are helping your campaign. But most Americans would call that collusion. McCarthy's problem is not with what I've said about Russia. McCarthy's problem is he can't get to 218 without Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Matt Gaetz. Uh, and so he will do whatever they ask. And right now they're asking for me to be removed from my committees, and he's willing to do it. He's willing to do anything they ask. And that's the problem. Um, Kevin McCarthy has no ideology. He has no core set of beliefs. It's very hard not only to get to 218 that way, it's even more difficult to keep 218. Uh, that's his problem. So he will misrepresent my record. He'll misrepresent Derek Swalwell or Ilhan Omar, whatever he needs to do to get the votes of the QAnon caucus within his conference. Democratic Representative Adam Schiff. McCarthy is vying to become Speaker when the next Congress convenes. He won the House GOP nomination to be Speaker in a 188-31 to 31 vote, but he needs to secure the majority in a floor vote of the full House to secure the gavel. Some GOP representatives say they may withhold their votes if McCarthy wavers in his support of former President Donald Trump. In more political news, on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, Donald Trump had dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West, now known as Yee, and noted neo-Nazi and anti-Semite Nick Fuentes. West has also made anti-Semitic comments threatening to go death con three on Jewish people, whatever that means, and declaring he loves Hitler and the Nazis. Fuentes, a virulent anti-Semite, denies the Holocaust, jokes about concentration camps on his internet TV show, says he approves of slavery and segregation, and in one clip says women should be set on fire. Instead of arguing them or saying, hey, listen, darling, everything's okay, they would dunk them in the river or burn them alive. I said, this is, this is the kind of thing that we need to see more of, is burning them alive a little, a little bit more. Taking women like this, and instead of, uh, you know, hiring a lawyer for all this money and we're going to sue him for defamation, how about we, we go to the constable or whatever, we go to the, uh, the police officer, the soldier stationed in the village, and say, hey, um, we got to burn her alive. You know, hey, th this woman is worshiping rocks. She's bearing false witness. She's, she's lying about men. And basically, we need to capture her and, and uh, throw her in the lake or set her on fire. I feel like that would be more appropriate. And everybody freaked out. And this was all over Twitter. And everybody said, oh, this is horrible. Is this guy for real? Uh, yeah, I'm for real. Trump brushed off the controversy, saying he had long asked to visit the Florida estate, claiming he didn't know who Fuentes was. 
The issue continued in a discussion between CNN host Don Lemon and former Trump State Department official Len Khodorovsky, who is Jewish, who tried to distinguish between Trump and anti-Semitism in general. We're talking about the former president meeting with an anti-Semite. How is this not about Trump? Because it's about the anti-Semitism. It's not about Trump. It's about uh, making sure that the issue of anti-Semitism is confronted in a way, in a substantive way, in which, you know, obviously I'm sure you're aware there's rising anti-Semitism in the United States and the world. It certainly is important for us to take it on. It is important for us to call it out. I am calling it out. I am saying he should not have met with Kanye West and a sidekick. What I'm also trying to point out, Don, is that it behooves you and uh, you know CNN and every other press outlet to call it out when you see it, especially when it comes in the halls of Congress, especially when every Democratic presidential hopeful goes and I kisses think, the ring listen, of Al Sharpton. I've seen it does uh, that. Who, and, when, and when the issue... CNN host Don Lemon and former Trump State Department official Len Khodorovsky, who is Jewish. And President Joe Biden on Monday asked Congress to intervene and block a railroad strike before next month's deadline in the stalled contract talks. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says lawmakers would take up legislation this week to impose the deal that unions agreed to in September. Hundreds of business groups have been urging Congress and the president to step into the deadlock contract talks and prevent a strike. White House press spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre on Monday. What we believe and what we will continue to say is that we think and and what should be happening in good faith is that they should come up with a solution. Majority of the unions have ratified this. You have eight out of the 12, which is important to also note. I'm just not going to get into any details on other efforts that we might be taking. I don't have anything to preview about convening everyone here all at once, but it matters. It matters that Secretary Walsh has been in direct contact with the rail workers. It matters that Secretary Buttigieg has been in touch with the companies, and it matters for certain that uh, Secretary Vilsack has been in touch with the agricultural sector, and that's going to continue. Those conversations will continue to happen. The president has been very clear. A shutdown is unacceptable. It will hurt families, communities across the country. It will hurt jobs. It will hurt farms. It will hurt businesses, and it just should not be happening. The business groups led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, National Association of Manufacturers, and National Retail Federation say even a short-term strike would have a tremendous impact and the economic pain would start to be felt even before the December 9th strike deadline. But workers with the unions who refused to sign the agreement say their demands of better working conditions and scheduled time off were not adequately addressed in the White House brokered agreement. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City's District Attorney Alvin Bragg downgraded 52% of all felony cases in 2022 to misdemeanors, compared to the 39% downgraded in 2019, according to data posted on the DA's website. Bragg, according to his department, declined to prosecute 35% more felony cases than in 2019. The DA's report also shows bail was requested for 2,518 felony cases so far in 2022, compared to 3,848 in 2019. But although some crimes are up, murders in the Big Apple are down from 432 to 372, and shootings are down from 1,688 to 1,438, while overall crime 
is up 28%. The biggest jump, felony assaults and robberies. It's been a week since residents of the Lower East Side neighborhoods surrounding Tompkins Square Park met in an unusual public meeting with police and elected city officials about open heroin use in the park. But a veteran heroin user and lifelong resident apparently hadn't heard the news because he was at it again. Sunday afternoon, Sid was sitting on a park bench cooking up a fix and injecting it into his foot. You gotta have an orgasm sign. You know? See that sign? See how put that in sign? See that. That's it. Done. That quick. That's it. Sid says it was heroin, although these days a user can't be sure if his smack was mixed with the much more powerful and deadly fentanyl. Despite the transgressive behavior, Sid's life hasn't been easy. Born with one foot six inches shorter than the other, Navigating the streets while unhoused, he tells the story of how he became an addict. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I was born with, this is called Perthes disease. What Perthes disease is, if I can, I'm show you. You see how much shorter uh, in length and in diameter my right fo- foot and leg is compared to the left foot and leg? See how much higher my leg foot is? It's up about what? That's like five inches off the ground. Probably more, about six inches, maybe like that. Aren't you afraid of fentanyl of getting a hot shot? Or oh, something? sure, man. I've already done it, man. I'll tell you about that. But here it is, man. Like, I became a heroin addict, and this is how. All right. I met this girl. It's always got to be the woman, right? Had to be the woman, but I had to be with her, right? So. It ain't her fault. I'm only joking, man. It ain't nobody's fault but mine. She didn't put her gun to my motherfucking head. Uh-uh. We was hanging out. While I got on my money and drugs, lay down in the hotel room, whatever. No, she was mad cool. So you shot up with her? So she started, she started coming around a lot, hanging out with me. And one night we were hanging out. This is like, I think it was, it was like the fourth time, or fourth or fifth time we've ever hung out, you know? And we had made plans uh, the, the, the night before. Hey, listen, this is where, where and what time we're going to meet up tomorrow, right? Yeah, we meet up tomorrow. Sure enough, I meet her where you think I meet her. She, <laughs> it's too easy, man. I am, especially down here in this fucking neighborhood down low east side. Especially back then. With New York among the hardest hit cities in the tidal wave of opiate addiction, about six New Yorkers die from an overdose every day, politicians have been steering a new course, looking towards harm reduction methods to mitigate the damage caused by opiates. The director of drug policy for the Open Society, Sarah Evans, she tells the news drug prohibition has made the problem worse. We are looking at a major public health crisis. Years of drug prohibition has given us one thing, and that is a tainted drug supply. Fentanyl and other strong synthetic opiates are in almost all drugs now, including places where people are not expecting opiates, such as cocaine or MDMA. This kind of prevalence of fentanyl is a contributing factor in the massive overdose crisis that we are seeing. The most recent year for which data is fully available, I think, is 2021. There were over 100,000 deaths that year. All overdose deaths are preventable. 2,000 of those were in New York City. So in 2021, we were seeing six people a day, one person every four hours in New York City, dying of a preventable overdose. 
basically completely unacceptable public health crisis. In many places, the death rate from overdose has even exceeded the death rate from COVID. The deaths from overdose tend to occur in much younger people. Black, brown and Indigenous people are particularly affected. It crosses race and class lines, but certain groups are definitely more vulnerable. There's attempts at the city council level to pass legislation to deal with what we're seeing in New York. You mentioned six deaths a day. New York is actually in some ways a leader in the country. There's a lot more that could be done. For example, New York City now has the first two overdose prevention centers in the country that have opened up in Harlem and Washington Heights. They've been open for a year with the blessing of the city which is great, and yet the ability for more sites to open and for, importantly, for money to go towards the operating of these sites is held up, waiting on some guidance from the federal level as to um, the legality of these sites and how they should operate. And so um, in the absence of that federal guidance, other sites are held up in the city um, and other cities across the country are slow or reluctant to open them. Places where people can go and use illicit drugs so they're not doing it in the park. They're not leaving needles Mm -hmm. in the park. Most importantly, they are not dying under bridges, which to me is just completely unacceptable, like in hotel rooms, in McDonald's bathrooms, behind trees in a park. Like To have people just dying of an overdose in situations like that in this country in this day and age is just completely unacceptable. Overdose prevention centers allow people to go inside and be treated with dignity, use their drugs that they've procured themselves elsewhere safely, and then also be connected to care and to other services. As one person told me, he thought it was a great idea, but, you know, he didn't have time to, uh, he was hanging out with his friends. He didn't have time to go all the way downtown or all the way uptown. Right, exactly. But he got his needle somewhere, right? And so if there was legal guidance and funds made available, every site where a person goes to get their needles could also be a site where people could safely use their drugs indoors. Former President Trump saying that he went to China and they had a great way of dealing with drug dealers and he would bring it here. Oh. Kill them. Yeah. Same day executions, no appeal. That's just a totally (laughs) horrific statement, period. And also it's politics and it is playing politics with people's lives. I'm talking about evidence-based interventions that we know will save people's lives, will create safer communities, will help people access care um, for addictions and opiate use disorders, like will decrease criminalization, decrease the number of people in prison, increase the number of people in care. Like we know that these interventions work and we have evidence. So it's not really a question of politicizing it the way that horrific comment does. It's just a question of having the will and ability to move forward with solutions that we know work. Psychedelics, they're, everybody, they're legalizing them in Colorado. There are uh, pl- reports coming out of top medical colleges that this is uh, useful. The tests show that uh, it's useful for P- PTSD. There's a huge test right now, a huge clinical study with veterans going on for psilocybin. What's been changing there? An interesting area. A lot of these plant medicines also have historical uses. 
that have been used by indigenous communities for years for spiritual and healing purposes. So there's other forms of knowledge, as well as the scientific evidences of today. There's also other forms of knowledge that these medicines, these plant medicines are effective. Frankly, I think that our society could use access to as many different types of healing as possible right now. And so why would we not continue to explore the use of psychedelics as well? Sarah Evans is Director of Drug Policy for the Open Society. At the community meeting at Tompkins Square Park, police bemoaned the lack of officers to police the park. With violent crime on the upsurge and the defund the police movement in full swing, drug use has taken a back seat in enforcement priorities. And finally, Mayor Eric Adams honored two heroic NYPD officers Monday who rescued a man from the East Harlem subway tracks on Thanksgiving. The mayor says the two officers are the embodiment of valor among the department's ranks as they leapt to the rails just ahead of an arriving six train. Tafik Bach and Brunel Victor, they embody the values of courage, caring, and compassion. And patrolling our subway system can be a challenging job. I know it far too well because I did it many years. But on Thanksgiving Day, a man experiencing homelessness felt dizzy and fell onto the subway tracks areas. Uh, both Officer Vock and Victor are proud members of New York City's 21st, 25th precinct did not hesitate to take action. As concerned New Yorkers held the emergency exit, the officers raced across the street and jumped onto the tracks. Seconds before a train came barreling in. With the help of a good Samaritan, uh, they rescued the man who was attended to by EMS and taken to the hospital in stable condition. Both these officers and a good Samaritan who we attempted to identify to thank also put their lives on the line for their fellow New Yorkers. Their courage and compassion is extraordinary. The two cops, as heroes usually do, told reporters it's all in a day's work. We were just doing our job like we do on a daily basis, just like we answer 911 calls every day. This is just, just another 911 call. Instead, instead of being a 911 call, people were crying out for help. And as soon as they cried out for help, we noticed somebody needed help. We, the best thing for us to do is to get them to safety, and which is what we did, like we do every day with any other calls that we respond to. We know the train was coming, somebody yelled out two minutes. All we had to do was get them to safety. Uh, we were concerned about the safety of the person who just fell onto, onto the trucks. The men in blue were patrolling Thursday afternoon while many New Yorkers were stuffing themselves with turkey and mashed potatoes when a man began to feel dizzy and fell to the northbound tracks. Bokt and Victor, who were both standing on the southbound side, bolted across the street and through emergency exits held open by waiting strap hangers and without hesitation hopped onto the tracks to assist the distressed man, whom officials say is homeless. With the assistance of an anonymous good Samaritan already on the tracks, the officers grabbed the man and hoisted him onto the platform. The identity of the good Samaritan remains a mystery. And that's the news for Monday, November 28, 2022. The news is written and produced by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>